You know, we all have kind of uh, experiences through our days and through our weeks and months, and and we something happens um, to us by somebody else. They they say something or do something or whatever, and we kind of go like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> I mean, what really, honestly, what's wrong with you? You know. I kind of had that thing happen to me a couple weeks ago. I was driving because uh, my wife called me and said, hey, could you pick something up at the store on the way home? So I said, sure. So I pulled into Safeway, ran into the store, picked it up, paid for it, went back out to my truck, jumped in it. And at Safeway, there's a little stop sign you stop at. You stop there, let the pedestrians go by. And so I, I pulled up and I stopped, nobody coming. And I drove around, headed back to Main Street. And there was this family of four, a mom, a dad, and two little kids, walking right down the middle of the driving area. And the dad was in the lead, and the mom was behind. And they both had their phones, and they were doing this, just walking down, not paying attention. And so I'm looking at them, and I'm going like, hey, I'm a nice guy. I don't run pedestrians over very often. So I'm just going to slow it way down make a wide berth around them, and everything's going to be good. And as I pulled around the dad, and I was probably 20 yards as I pulled around him, he looked up at me, and I flashed him a big smile, and he stared at me like I was the enemy, like I had done something wrong. And I'm like, whoa. And so as I drove to the other end of this entourage, there was the mom, and she looked up and raised her hand to wave at me, and so I... I waved at her, but she gave me the one-finger salute. I was like, are you kidding me? Sheesh, what's wrong with you people? You know, I was being polite. I was looking out for their well-being. I gave them a wide berth. And this is what I get in return. What is wrong with you people? You know, it's not just the people in Lander or in our area that make us say something like that. There are the rich and famous, and because they're rich and famous, an athlete, a musician, a movie star, they think that they have a voice on everything that is current in our country. They think that they can talk about the political thing that's going right now because they're famous. They think that they, they can give voice to what's happening in the Middle East because, after all, they know better than anybody else. They think that they can say whatever they want, and as we listen to them, at the end of what they're done saying, we go like, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you? That's not, I, I mean, it's just like total nonsense. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. <laughs> now I have to admit that there are times when I say or do something that is so far out of the character of who God wants me to be that I say to myself, what's wrong with me? Have you ever done that? Have you ever had that thought run through your mind? What's wrong with me? You know, I wonder if I'll ever become who Jesus called me to be. I wonder if I will ever be the man of God that my dad was. I wonder if I will ever be the husband or father that I know I'm capable of being in Christ. 
And I know that that question is a question that all of us asks ourselves at one time or another. It comes from a heart that God is sanctifying. That's a big word. But he, he's growing us in our faith. And so we can no longer put up with bad behavior. We, we can't put aside the thoughts that we've had and, and, and we're no longer willing to live with sinful behavior. We're crushed when we fall into the old habits and sins that we thought were long gone. And after we've committed that sin or we've had those thoughts, the question haunts all of us. What's wrong with me? We all have to face the fact that there is something desperately wrong with the human condition. Our hearts and our minds are in conflict with God. God knows our condition. He knows our hearts. And yet He loves us deeply. And that's an amazing thing. In Jeremiah 17, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This illness of the heart and the mind is what gives way to a soul that has an affliction that only God can cure. And that cure is found only in the work and the person of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I came to faith, I wished that all those sin, sins that have a tendency to cling to me, all those thoughts and things that I think that trip me up, I, was, I just wished that they would have been eradicated when I said yes to Jesus. But the problem is, is that they're not. And they're just sitting there kind of waiting in dormant for that one moment when I take my eyes off Jesus and I look at something I shouldn't look at or I say something I shouldn't have said and, and I lose it. I lose the fact that Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith and it's at that moment that I find myself in the proverbial pig trough feeding my soul with foul food and it's the foul food of this world and it will rot my mind and my soul as it will rot your mind and your soul and so we're called to go away from that you know Paul wrote his letters to the various churches I mean all the epistles that Paul wrote were to churches and he addressed this very issue in every letter he knew that the human heart was in need of continual work of sanctification of the Holy Spirit when we came to faith in Christ the, there's this theological term that describes this work, the divine work of God, and it's called regeneration. And regeneration is where the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit recreates a new person. The old person has been put to death. There's a new person by the radical and complete transformation created in the soul by God. Regeneration is the work of being a new creation whereas sanctification is the continual growth in becoming and being that new creation. So we've been regenerated, but God doesn't just leave us there. He sanctifies us. He keeps growing us. He wants us to mature, to become adults in faith. In our study in Colossians, Paul is now uh, taking the church from theology to practical application, as we saw last week. The establishment of practical application begins with our thoughts and our mindset to be on things above. Paul continues on in, in this letter in chapter 3 
that where our minds are focused is where our behavior is manifested. What you think about is how you're going to act. The things that come in here or in here come out here in the way that we act. And in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives us positive application for our mindset and thoughts. But in verse 5, all of a sudden, he goes right after the issue. He doesn't even give you a breather. And what many would seem and see as what Paul is saying as a negative approach to life or to dealing with issues. Most people don't want to deal with life on the negative approach. They want everything to be happy, 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 feel good, tell me how great I'm doing, don't bring up anything bad because I don't want to do that. I don't want to hear that. They, they just want to forego how easily we can slip back into our old life. Almost most people, also most people don't want to hear about sin. Uh, that, that's kind of amazing to me when you go to church and you don't want to hear about sin. Because when I read the Bible, by the third chapter, we're neck deep in it. <clears throat> oh, we are deep trouble. And it's all about sin. And, and it, it continually talks about sin and God's redemption. Our disobedience and God's faithfulness. It, it talks about that all the way through. And people don't want to talk about sin because they think that when we talk about sin that, that we're talking about them being these negative, no good for nothing kind of people. But that's not what God says. I, I mean, if somebody has, has the flu or they have cancer or they have some other disease, we don't talk about them being, you know, rotten people because they got cancer. That's the way God looks at us. He doesn't see us as rotten kids. He goes, you've got a disease and it's called sin and I want to heal you of that. But you know, unfortunately, what happens is that it, there are a lot of people who want to hear about sin, generally speaking. But when you get down to the specifics of it, it becomes offensive, distasteful. It's off limits. Don't talk to me about that stuff. I don't want to hear it. So, you know, with that in mind, let's just jump into out of bounds, offensive and distasteful. We'll talk about sin this morning. You guys are all happy to be here, aren't you? <laughs> Somebody gets to sitting in the front and going like, oh man, I should have looked that up. I wouldn't have come today. But we tricked you because we brought in a meal too. <laughs> so we're going to talk about sin, then we're going to feed your stomachs, okay? All right. Uh, look at Colossians 3, verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, what I want you to notice is that Paul uses some really strong language right at the beginning of this. Because he says, put it to death. Kill it. Now, we live in a, in a society now where it's like, oh, you, you know, don't kill the little animals out in the woods. That's mean. But kill the babies over at the clinic. That's okay. But don't hurt the little bunny. Oh, for Pete's sakes. Paul uses this really strong language. And when he talks about death, I mean, if you've... If, uh, we live in Wyoming, so people go hunting, right? 
Is there, I just want to ask one question. Is there anybody here who has never been hunting or seen an, something, an animal killed? Raise your hand if you haven't. You're from Colorado and Canada. <laughs> well, it is ugly and messy. There is blood, there is pain, and death is final. And that's what Paul says. He says, put this stuff to death. Now, I want you to know that Paul's not the only one that says, kill the desires of your flesh. It, it's radical. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. He said, if, you're, if your eye causes you to stumble, take a spoon and gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. I mean, this is some pretty radical stuff that both Paul and Jesus are talking about. Now, I want to help you out because I don't want anybody to go home today and gouge out their eye or chop off their hand because they weren't talking about literal surgery to remove whatever it is that's causing you to sin. Because I'm going to tell you something. You may not know this. Your hand can't cause you to sin. Your eye can't cause you to sin. It's the wickedness of the heart that produces the desire to go and sin in some way that is highly offensive to God and probably really offensive, offensive to the rest of us. And so when, when, when we talk about putting something to death, physical dismemberment cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. And Paul says, put it to death. He means discard it, get rid of it. All those evil practices, what, whatever the earthly things are, we need to execute them. We need to stand them up on the wall. We need to tie them to a rope and we need to shoot them dead and then kick them into a hole and bury them. Let's, let's follow the Wyoming three S's. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. <laughs> right? Let's kill those things, throw them in the, in the hole, and let's just forget about them. And let's press on towards what Jesus has for us. Because that's really important. But Paul here, he gets really specific and he lists five elements that we're to discard. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. And those all seem to be the same thing to us as we look at them. Because it sounds like he's stating it and then restating it because we're not smart enough to get it the first time. But they're different. And then he talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. And we kind of want to put that into a category of all, all on its own. We're going to deal with the first four. And then we're going to come back and talk about the last one. But that's not all the sermon is all about. I'm just telling you, there's a whole lot more after that. So strap on your seatbelts and let's go, okay? The first element we are to remove is immorality, which encompasses every kind of moral sexual relation outside of marriage. Now, I don't know how specific I should get but, but this immorality seems to be uh, invasive into not just our culture, but into the church culture as well. They don't want to talk about this to the extent that Paul's taking it. They want to keep it vague and grayish, and, you know, give it a lot of wiggle room. And, and there's an Old Testament principle that is true today as when it was given. And it was given by Samuel. In 1 Samuel 17, Samuel had to deliver some bad news to King Saul. He, King Saul was given a task, a mission by God to destroy all the people and an, animals of Amalek. But when 
when Saul had taken the city of Amalek, he kept the best of all the animals, the sheep, the cattle, the camels, the goats, the chickens, he, the rabbits. He kept the best of all of them. And he didn't kill the king as he was told to do. He kept the king alive as well. And, and God says in his word in that 15th chapter, he regretted making Saul the king. This is the first king of Israel. And now God, he's only been on the job for a short while. And God's going like, man, I, re I regret making him king. That's what he told Samuel. And, and so Samuel goes and confronts Saul on, on his disobedience towards God. And here's what Saul said. He kind of made this claim that he had kept all these really fine-looking animals so that he could make a sacrifice to God, after all. You know, that's kind of like what we do. We get caught with our hand in the cookie jar. We're disobedient to God. We sin. And somehow we want to spin this thing to spiritualize it. God told me to run off with my neighbor's wife. No, God didn't tell you that because God wouldn't violate his own word. You're messed up if that's what you think. And that's kind of what Saul was doing here. He put a spiritual spin on it. Saul did this. And what Saul did is he made his disobedience sound as though it was good and acceptable by, by saving the best animals for God. But listen to what Saul, Samuel said to Saul in verse 22. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. God made it clear that he sets out some things in his word that we are to absolutely obey without hesitation all the time. And immorality is an area where God says, stay away from that, don't go there, because you think that it's okay because you're not really doing anything to anybody else. It's just, you know, you're watching stuff on television or on your computer. You're looking at magazines or, or you're thinking thoughts that you think, don't harm anybody else. But the truth is, is that it, it rots your mind, it corrodes your soul, and it affects your family. Your wife, your children, your grandchildren, your sisters, your brothers. All that stuff comes at us and, and it just absolutely erodes everything that God wanted. And that's why it blows my mind when, when I'm meeting with young couples who are getting married and they're church people and they come in and they sit down and I, I ask them now, are you celibate? Because I'm assuming they're not. And I can tell you that in, in, the, la in the 13 years that I have been here, two couples of the weddings that I have done have said, we are saving ourselves till we get married because that's what God says we're supposed to do. Disobedience to God in these things, you know, we, we think we get away with it. But it erodes us. Immorality erodes us. We kind of think, what's the big deal? Well, disobedience to God is a big deal. Because what God wants is your heart. He wants your undivided allegiance to him. And when you willfully disobey God, your loyalty is now placed on the sensual heart and on the filthy mind. That's where your loyalty is. It's no longer on God. 
The second element uh, of sensuality which we are to kill is impurity. It's moral uncleanness. It, it has the phys- it, it's wider and more subtle than physical immorality. It embraces the lewd imagination and speech and deed of the sensual heart. It's private. Nobody knows. We try and keep it hidden. The third element is passion, which means lustful passion, and the shameful emotion, which leads to sexual excess. God made us to be sexual beings. Don't get me wrong. God created the best thing for a husband and wife, and it's called sex. And I'm telling you right now, after 32 years of marriage, sex is great. If you're married. If you're not, keep your hands to yourself, as the song goes. It, it, it's, it's just, we've got these, these things that are just coming at us. I want you to understand. Let me help you understand this. That in half a day, that I live, I will see more sensual, sexual stuff than my grandfather saw in his entire lifetime. That's how bad it's gotten. And the worst part about it is everybody's saying, hey, it's okay. If it makes you feel good, do it. There's no problem. You're not hurting anybody. Well, that's just hog water. That's just, that's nonsense. And, and, and Paul's telling us, kill those things. You've got to destroy them. You've got to eliminate them. You've got to ruthlessly rip them out of your life. The fourth element of sensuality to be discarded is evil desires. Wicked, self-serving, ferocious lust. This is a person who, who in, instead of just kind of maybe sneaking a peek and watching stuff that he thinks he's doing all by himself, is now on the prowl looking. It's not just guys, by the way. This isn't just a guy issue. I want you to know, women have the same problems men do. It's just guys are pigs, and so, we, you know, that's just the way it is, right? I mean, you're such a pig. I guess so, right? But I'm telling you, it pervades into the hearts and the lives of women just as much as it does men. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high? Why do you think that there's infidelity within marriages? It's not because they're living pure lives. There's something else going on in those lives. This is a deadly quartet of insidious sins that Paul says must be slain outright, executed. This sensuality has saturated our, our culture to the degree that we've become desensitized to it. And that it no longer makes us blush when we see things on TV we should blush at. There's stuff that comes on all the time that we should absolutely blush at, but we don't. We just let it come on us. My dad made a, I'm not saying he was a prophet, but back in the early 80s, that's when things were tame. My dad said to me, he goes, they're showing stuff on commercials that should make us blush, and you should blush at them. Unfortunately, I didn't. I had an evil, lustful heart. And that's, 
That's really the, the bad thing is, is that because we as adults are sitting there letting this crap come into our house, our children are sitting there and they're being desensitized to the whole thing all over. And so our generation, my generation, the dirty old man generation, we're bad. But you know what's behind us? Worse. Because we've been feeding it to them. And God says, stop that. Knock it off. Don't do it anymore. There are far too many professing Christ followers who take uh, sensitive, they, they talk sensitively about theology and serious issues, but yet have a private life of sensuality that is destroying their souls, their marriage, their careers, and their families. There is a self-delusion that to participate and practice in this sinful behavior is doing no harm to anyone, and so why shouldn't I just be involved in it? The delusion is so deep that those who are involved in it don't see any inconsistency in their own behavior anymore. It's horrible. And after they've done whatever they're going to do, and they've, they've had that, that moment of satisfaction or pleasure, whatever it is that's sick, after that, then immediately falling on the heels of it, running through their mind is they say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I can tell you. Welcome to the human race. We all have to suffer through this. We all have to work our way through it. But the good news is we've got a God who knows all about it, and he loves us anyway. Isn't that just where we're supposed to be? We're supposed to go and like, you know, here's where we want to go. I really suck. I'm horrible. I'm a sick person. And God says, no, you're my child, dearly loved, and I want to help you, and I will pour into your life to set you free. That's what he's telling us. Now we come to the word of covetousness, or better understood to mean greedy. Here greedy denotes not merely the desire to possess more than one has, but more than one ought to have, particularly that which belongs to someone else. The mention of this at the end of this list of sexual sins is highly significant, for it is intimately associated with them. It is really another form of the same evil desire, except that it is fixed on material things. Often when sensuality loses its hold, materialism takes its place. These, are the, these sins have the same source. It's our heart. It's, it's not looking to God. It's looking to ourselves. Such greed is really the lowest form of idolatry. Nothing could be lower than putting our trust in material things and making that our God. Whatever I trust, I worship. That means your spouse. That means your children. That means your boss. That means your job. That means yourself. You trust yourself more than you trust God. You're worshiping. It's self-worship. Naughty. Here's what we like to do with the covetous person because they're the, we look at and honor successful covetous people. So what do we do? Here's an old saying. It goes like this. If a man is drunk with wine, we kick him out of the church. If he was drunk with money, we make him a deacon. <laughs> I've seen that far too many times. Uh, I've been in a lot of churches 
I've served in three. And the churches that I was in, in college and other places, they find the most successful businessmen and make them elders and deacons. And unfortunately, they were really successful at business, but they really stunk the joint out when it came to caring for their families, loving their kids, uh, giving to the poor, taking care of the needy. They were, they were just absolutely horrid, but because they had money, we're going to make them, you know, go team loser, something like that. You know what? This is really serious business because both these sins provoke the wrath of God, Colossians 3, 6 through 7. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them. Now, Paul's message here is really clear. I mean, as we've been studying and going through this, this letter, he's, he's made it really clear that since we have died and we have been buried and resurrected and ascended with Christ, since we have been made full of his fullness, there are some things we must put off. Namely, sensualism, sensualism and materialism. Sensuality has no room in our lives. Materialism is no room in our lives. We need to destroy them, eradicate them, eliminate them from our lives. Now, don't misunderstand me. You need to have a house to live in. But if you worship your house, then you maybe should sell it and move to something uh, a step lower. You need a vehicle to drive. But that vehicle shouldn't become the whole thing in your life. So what I'm saying is that there are things, when kept in the proper perspective, are good and right, what God says. But we take good and right things and we elevate them to a level that they should have no room in our lives. And because of that kind of thinking, the wrath of God is coming. Right? Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he is going to set all things right. So whatever the bad stuff is that is really wicked and evil, and the good stuff that's been turned into an idol, God is, Jesus is going to deal with all of that on the level. Now, let me help you out. If you're a follower of Christ, you're, you're, you're sitting good. But it doesn't mean that he's not going to have a little chit-chat with us. My dad used to have those with me. Put his arm around me. Say, hey, let's walk out to the woodshed for a minute. <laughs> you know I love you. Yep. You know that some of this stuff you're doing is just absolutely dead wrong. Nope. Really? You're going to lie to me? Nope. It's wrong. <laughs> right? And, and, and you have that conversation. Now, you know, I was 21, so he wasn't going to paddle my fanny. He was just letting me know that as a young man, there were things that were unacceptable. And I, and, and you, I love you. And you know what? If God loves you, he's going to have that conversation with you. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to walk with you and go like, all right, you know I love you. Yep. I died on the cross for you. Yep. I'm coming back, and I'm here now to take you with me. Yep. But you know, there are some things. Yep. And it'll be like that. So you don't want to be like that, do you? You want to be able, when Jesus comes back, you go like, over here. Come get me. You're excited. We are also to put off evil attitudes and speech, Colossians 3, 8 through 9. 
But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. The anger here is this growing anger. It's something that is like, you know, probably for us in Wyoming, this is a really good analogy. It's like you go to Old Faithful and you pull up and there's nothing happening. But if you sit down and wait, what is it, a half an hour, 40 minutes? You sit down and you just sit on the little benches they got there. You know that something's going to erupt over there. And the steam and water is going to come gushing out. That's what this anger is all about. It's, it's something that just builds and builds and builds and builds. And all of a sudden, it just erupts and it erupts on everybody. And the problem with this kind of anger is that more times than not, when that anger erupts, it erupts on the people we love the most. Our families, our children, our wives, our, our siblings, our parents. And, and then once we get done erupting on them, then we're going to find some good-natured people in, in, in the family of God, and we're going to erupt on them. And then if things are really out of control, we're going to go to work, and we're going to let our coworkers or our employees have it. We're going to just let them, they're going to get everything. And so we just erupt. The problem is, is that when this is a part of your life on an ongoing basis, people can almost set their watches. Yeah, it's been about three days. There's an eruption coming. I think I'm going to call in sick today. That's what happens because people just know you. You have this, this thing going on and it just it, it blows up on everybody. The next one is wrath or rage. And it's that anger. It's, it, it's anger, but it's always at the surface and it doesn't take much to set it off. It's kind of like when you have a boiling pot of water sitting on the stove and it's boiling, it's always ready to go over the top. It's just boiling, 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 and it, it just bubbles over. That's what wrath is. It, it's that stuff that just bubbles over on, you don't have to do anything. You just show up, and all of a sudden, it's bubbled over on you, and you're going like, I don't know what's going on here. We call these people hot or quick-tempered people because they're, they're, their fuse is short, and they're ready to go off on somebody all the time. Boom! Like that. Paul's saying, stop doing that. Get that out of your life. Malice reveals a viciousness of mind. It's the malignant attitude, attitude which plans evil and rejoices when misery falls on the one it hates. You're going, surely that doesn't show up in church. Are you kidding me? Have you ever been a pastor? Oh, no, you haven't. I, I've got a notebook back here. It's about 600 pages. I'm just kidding. You guys are great. Nobody ever says anything mean in the church. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is able to deal with every one of those issues in your life. Here's the bad news. If you don't place that under the authority of Christ... It will continue to grow and become something that is absolutely destructive. Those attitudes will become the heated metal of our lives and will be forged into poisoned arrows of the tongue. And, the, and these other disorders here that Paul's talking about will bring a world of hurt not only to others but to yourself. It says slander. 
Slander will flow out of the mouth, which is hurtful speech, which defames one's character. This unchecked will turn into the others. Obscene or filthy talk, foul and abusive speech. These things do more harm than what you can imagine. They're ridiculously harmful. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying next. So hear my heart in this. We have these laws, pretty strict laws that have been set in place now in the United States that deals with domestic violence. You hear about it on the news all the time. Domestic violence, take a husband beating a wife, a wife taking a cast iron frying pan to her husband's head. You know, those kinds of things. And so we have these really strict laws on domestic violence, as we should. Matter of fact, if I, if I find out that one of you is beating your spouse or your girlfriend or your children, I'm going to go down to the Lander Bar. I'm going to take 500 bucks. I'm going to find the biggest, meanest, ugliest <laughs> guy I can find. I'm going to have your picture, I'm going to give him the 500 bucks, and I'm going to say, beat him within an inch of their life. Because that's the justice God would bring. That's what I would do, but I don't have 500 bucks. Lorinda does. <laughs> but here's the part that goes unchecked. Words that are said out of anger and hurt. And, and destructive. I mean, it blows my mind when I hear parents in the, in the grocery store or downtown or whatever telling their kids just to shut up. Why are you so stupid? You'll never amount to anything. They, they bash their children right in public, and, and it just absolutely appalls me because they have no idea that the things that they have just said in that 30-second tirade on their children is going to last for a lifetime. It destroys them. And we don't have any laws to protect against that because we have a constitution that says I have the freedom of speech. I can say whatever I want. Who are you telling me what I can say to my kids and can't say to my kids? You know, it, 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 it's unbelievable that children go through the pain that they do because it affects their lives for the rest of their lives. And, and you think you may not be doing your children any harm because you're having this conversation with your spouse where you're using degrading terms, you're, you're running them down, they're doing it back to you, and you both are fighting with each other, and you're just absolutely not even being nice about it. I mean, it's unfair the way you do it. You can fight and be fair. I want you to know that. It's biblical, okay? There's fair fights. But when you are degrading and using words as a weapon to your spouse, guess what your children are hearing? They're hearing, hey, this is what marriage looks like. So when I, when I get married, I'm just going to call my wife those nasty things. When, when I get married, I'm going to tell my husband what kind of a guy he is with very col colorful language. And we, it, it, there's, there's no census on this, this abusive speech. It just blows my mind because... I deal with those people in my office when they're 35 and 40 because they've been beat up so bad by, by their parents and their siblings telling them you're not going to amount to anything, you're not worth two cents, 
Why do you always have to come in here and bug me? Why don't you go outside and play and just stay away from me? Can't you tell I'm busy? Parents obviously are too busy to spend time with their children because they're on their phones texting, looking at Facebook, checking the weather, doing all the rest of that really important stuff. Those little kids go outside because all they really want is a little bit of mom and dad time. That's what they want. They crave for it. And even as badly as you will treat them or people will treat their children, those kids will keep coming back because they keep holding out hope that someday my dad's just going to sit down, put his arm around me and just say, I love you. What's on your mind? The little girl is going to crawl up in her father's lap because she desires the affection of her father in a very healthy way. And she just wants to crawl up in his lap and just, just not even say anything. Feel secure in the wrap of the father's arms. And if she doesn't get it, she's going to go find some man that's going to abuse her. I'm just telling you this. There are some people who shouldn't have kids. They don't deserve them. God calls kids a gift from above. They're his gift to us. We get them for 18 to 20 years, unless you're me. I get them like for 35, I think. (laughs) But we have them for a short time, and we're to raise them up, to grow them up, to be Christ-like. That's our job. They're not ours forever. We get them for a short time, and we're supposed to grow them to be Christ followers who are good citizens and participate and do well to other people. That's our job. We're supposed to love on them while we're doing it. We're supposed to teach them about the Father's love. Boom. We just kick them out the door, and they run off, and next thing you know, they're in prison. And it's a bad thing. Our homes are supposed to be a place of sanctuary. They're supposed to be a place where they can find unconditional love, grace, and mercy. A a, a big hug on a bad day. A kiss on the cheek when they go to bed at night. A whisper, I love you. I love you more than you'll ever know. Because that's exactly what our Father in Heaven does for us. Paul goes on to say, don't lie to each other. Lying is a hideous sin. And the first place of offense is always with God. Proverbs 16 or Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, that's pride. Lying tongue, that's lying. Hands that kill innocent, that's murder. I'm just helping you out. A heart that plots evil. Yeah. I was going to say Democrats, but that wouldn't have been nice. So I didn't say that. I didn't say that. God, God loves us all. I'm just saying that. Feet that race to do wrong. Okay, that's Republicans. A false witness who pours out lies, lying again. A person who sows discord in the family. Those are the seven things that God absolutely detests and hates. Lying is the second one. And yet we go around and we just lie like it's no big deal. I want you to notice two things about this, this this, this thing that despises God so much. First thing is, lying is stated emphatically, number two. And God hates a lying tongue. 
And then it's implied he hates a false witness. The second thing I want you to notice is God doesn't hate the person. He hates the sin. And I'm so thankful because you know why? I was born a liar. And God loves me. And he is my father. You know, we just don't very seldom call people out on their lies. We let them lie to our face. And we need to stop them in their tracks and say, that's a lie, and you need to quit lying. They do it through exaggeration. I shot an elk so big I couldn't even get it in the back of a three-ton dually. <laughs> Liar. I mean, we can call them on that. We need to. The worst part to me is when little kids tell lies, and mom and dad kind of smile and go like, oh, it's just a little white lie. It's no big deal. Hog water, it's a big deal to God. It's second on the list. We've got to quit lying to each other. We've got to quit lying to our spouses and to our children and to ourselves and to our neighbors and to the unchurched because a great church demands great honesty. And if we want to be great in this community, we have to be honest. God... You know, lying is a great sin against God, it's a sin against the church, and it's a sin against love. Because if you really really love somebody, you'll tell them the truth. Because you know that they love you back, and that they're not going to kick you to the curb. They're going to love you in spite of the fact that you're a liar. By the way, welcome to the club. You're all a bunch of liars, just like me. Anybody want to dispute that? Because i got a verse for you if you do. Let's move on to... 3 through uh, 9 through 10. Seeing that you've put off your old self with its practices, put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. All authentic believers have a new self with a spiritual sensitivity and abilities and wonderful new possibilities in this life. We don't, if we, when we don't put off or kill the sins that are so easily entangling us or binding us up, we become slaves to the old way that God has freedom, freed us from. Christ has been giving us a new life, a new identity, and freedom from all the junk that has ever kept us in bondage. I'm just going to skip a verse, Phoebe, and I'm just going to move on. God desires for us to live in his likeness, in his true holiness and righteousness, not in a self-made righteousness, not in a self-manufactured holiness, but in the authentic life through Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. Here's the kicker. This is what he's telling us to do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. We've got all this sin junk going on in our lives. It's a sin to drive that person away and not offer them forgiveness. Because God forgave us of all the crap in our life, and we've done a whole lot worse to God than anybody has ever done to us. So we need to forgive. We need to love. We need to be tender with them. When we kill sensuality, greed, anger, malice, we put, and we put off slander, obscene talk, and lying, we have a funeral for it. We kick that thing into the hole, bury the dirt on it, and our old self is gone. And then we celebrate the fact that we have this new life in Christ, 
as we live in the new self, Jesus, and in Jesus, it brings a renewal that is radical. It changes all human relationships, seen in Colossians 3.11. I'm just going to go through this real quickly. It changes racial barriers because it says there, here there is not Greek or Jew. Racial barriers are gone because of the radical work of God in our lives and us dealing with these sin issues. Religious barriers, circumcised or uncircumcised, gone. Now, I'm not saying that we step into cultic activity and people who do not teach the word of God, the truth about Jesus, but every other church in this town that teaches about Jesus and lifts him up, we need to be including them in our conversations. That's what I mean by that. Cultural barriers, barbarian or Scythian. That means that, that there is not a culture around... There isn't a culture. Sorry, guys. There isn't a culture around that is outside of our realm of loving. And we have them around us. Social barriers. Slave or free. That's all been busted. All been broken down. All those barriers. Because of Jesus... And because we're a new creature. Let me tell you what's going to help you. How do you deal with this stuff? Because it, we try it in the flesh and guess what? It doesn't work. We've made a promise to ourselves: I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to talk that way again. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to be gentler. I'm going to be more gracious. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And we make that promise to ourselves and we say we're going to do it. And then within 24 hours, we've just done what we said we weren't going to do. So how do you deal with this? Well, the good news is that found in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You're being tempted. God's not allowing you to be tempted with something that you can't handle. But it's not just that. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Not only does God say, I'm not going to give you more than you can handle as far as temptation goes, but when you are tempted with this, 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 and this, that's the exit door right over there. Take it. Get out of there. Flee from it. That's what he's calling us to do. The other encouragement that we have is that found in Philippians 1.6. And I am certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Uh, that's a long time. We get a long, we get a long time to work this stuff out. We get a long time to work at becoming who Christ made us to be with the work of Jesus already active in our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the body of Christ, the family of God coming around us, we will grow in our faith. Now, I don't know what God's been saying to you this morning, but I can tell you there's, there's, two, there's two areas here. When God pokes us, sometimes it's God poking us and sometimes it's the devil poking us. So how do you know the difference? The difference is when God brings conviction into your life, and I don't know if he's done that this morning, 
But when God brings conviction into your life, it says, I want to change. I want to be different. I want, to, I want you to be different. I'm going to help you be different. We feel bad about what we've done. And we, that, that feeling of, of remorse drives us to the cross of Jesus so that we become more like him. Condemnation. These are the words of the enemy that will bring condemnation. You're no good. You're a rotten kid. God doesn't love you. You keep screwing up. How many times can you keep doing this before God says enough? Your life is finished. You don't have a chance. You can't make it. Look how lousy you are. You stink the joint out. You call yourself a Christian. And it's all that negative talk. That is not coming from God. That is condemnation from the enemy. And it has no place in your life. Tune your ear to God for conviction. Turn your hearing aid off when it's condemnation. If you want to kill sensuality, covetousness, anger, rage, malice, obscene or filthy talk, foul and abusive speech, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things here on the earth, because the things on earth are where the flesh feeds on filth. Amen? Father, we thank you. This is tough, tough stuff, God. And in the flesh, we can't do it. We fail. We'll be miserable because we keep going back and to the trough, the pig trough, over and over and over, hoping to find some pearl in there, something good, but there's nothing good there. And yet you have prepared a banquet table for us with the finest of meats, with the, the choicest of wines. And you've told us to come and dine at that table, to get out of the barn and into the, into the mansion banquet hall, to be cleaned up and come and enjoy this meal with you. Because you want us to be like you. You, you want to wash us clean. You want to make us new. You want us to, to step into trusting you with every aspect of our life. And, and these are hard things that we're talking about today. And so I pray for your people, for myself, that where there's conviction, we would turn to you. We would seek you out and ask you to guide us and help us. That you would redeem our souls. That you would, you would continue to lift us up and help us along so that we become more of who you want us to be. And now, God, as, as we just in this next song, help us to turn our attention and thoughts towards you. And if you're calling us to repentance, help us to repent. Don't let us make excuses. If you're calling us for a change, help us to find someone who's flesh and blood that will walk beside us as we make the change. Whatever you're calling us to, God, help us to recognize that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Amen.